This is an ABC podcast. Humans have long had an interest in marine architecture. The Victorians, for instance, loved to build ornate piers, stretching out to sea, places of entertainment for holidaymakers. Hello, Anthony Fennell here. Welcome to Future Tense. For much of the 20th century, we pretty much gave up on building large-scale structures off the coast, oil rigs being the exception. Instead, we transformed the shoreline into sprawling urban environments. But now, architects, engineers and city planners are once again turning their attention to the ocean environment. With improved technology, we've found so many more ways that we can build into the sea, particularly because we're running out of space on land for people, for resource extraction and and other sorts of development. Dr Catherine Daffhorn, an environmental scientist from Macquarie University. We've always wanted to live next to the oceans and our coastal cities are expanding. So this idea that um, marine urbanisation or marine urban sprawl is occurring has been driving some really interesting research into monitoring it and managing it. And certainly in many of the coastal cities around the world, we've now got around 50 to 70% of shorelines modified. And those are modified by things like seawalls, marinas and other sorts of infrastructure. But at the same time, you know, we are always searching for additional resources and places to put our people. So we're starting to build more offshore things like oil rigs, gas extraction, floating wind farms. We've also got many examples around the world now of of artificial islands being built. We had a a recent collaboration between uh, researchers in Sydney and researchers from around the world, including Singapore, Italy and the US. And together we mapped the artificial islands using Google Earth and we used literature that was available online and published in journals to work out the actual extent of our artificial island footprint. The number they came up with was 450. Some small, some large, some very large, some used for housing, for holidaymakers, for military purposes and for airports. It's increasing all the time and a lot of it is driven by this constant coastal squeeze where we're running out of space on land for people and and we're starting to extend by reclaiming land. And that term really refers to the infilling of submerged environments and that is done often with things like sand and other sorts of rubble, sometimes material that is rubbish left over from other sorts of construction. And some of the greatest land reclamation is probably occurring right now in in China. They've reclaimed extensive stretches of their intertidal zone around 13,000 kilometres square area of their intertidal mudflats have been lost due to land reclamation. We've also got Singapore. I understand a quarter of Singapore is built on reclaimed land. And a surprise to me was Tokyo. 
Yeah, so even their their airports are built onto artificial islands, and that's probably some of the shining examples of how to build artificial islands in an effective way, um, not necessarily an ecologically sustainable way. But certainly the Kansai International Airport in Japan really set the standard in terms of the technology needed to build an artificial island. So this idea of marine urban sprawl has currency for you? Absolutely. And it's gaining even more attention because more countries are looking to build offshore and looking to use technology to build artificial islands. And the way that floating cities are presented as this very neat solution to a, an increasing problem of, of sea level rise and population growth, I think that there is definitely a shift and more countries are actually investing money in doing it. Even places like Monaco, places like the Maldives all have their own plans for artificial islands. We've got about 50% of the global population staying in coastal regions or living there. And we've got about two-thirds of our megacities that are located on really what's 10% of our landmass. So we're starting to really look at how we can expand sensitively into the ocean. And we've done this before with land reclamation, which is highly damaging to the marine ecology. And now we're exploring in terms of floating and deploying infrastructure. And by infrastructure, we're talking about the vital components that make our societies run. Bryden Wang is a technology researcher and construction lawyer. He's based at the Queensland University of Technology. So we're seeing a lot of infrastructure related to energy. So a lot of wind farms are being explored and being floated on the ocean. And the advantage of having these wind turbines located on the ocean is that winds across the surface of the sea are much higher than on land. And you don't have that same problem of having to locate or transport parts on the land. And so when you can float them and build them by the sea, you can have these massive turbines that can generate electricity. So offshore engineering is really about locating a lot of this infrastructure, sensitive infrastructure, particularly things like airports, nuclear stations, power stations, onto the ocean to try and locate them still close to the city, but in a way that can be protected in using the natural sort of moat-like environment of the sea. And there's another key advantage as well. So with floating structures, you have a modular structure that is highly mobile. You can float it around. And so... For example, if you put a desalination plant in the ocean, you might have a particular condition where there's drought condition in a particular city and you can actually float that desalination plant to where it's needed at that point in time. It's, I think the advantages of it being mobile is probably the most beneficial aspect of having these infrastructure there because cities tend to be very inflexible once you've got buildings built. And so when you have these kinds of structures that can be floated and moved from, say, city to city, or if you have an emergency center that can actually be floated to an area of dire need, then it's one of the key significance of floating structures. And if that all makes sense to you, but you're doubtful that anybody would ever want to build a floating nuclear reactor, think again. A nuclear power plant sailing the seas. Russia says it's one of the safest and cleanest ways to provide energy to remote areas. The academic Lomonosov combines both the technology of a nuclear-powered icebreaker and that of a land-based nuclear plant. It took 10 years to design and build. The nuclear station is very solid and is not vulnerable in case a tsunami or another disaster happens. Tests have shown that chances of a gigantic asteroid destroying the Earth in the future is twice as high as internal damage to this reactor. 
question I get uh, quite often is what is seasteading? And seasteading started out, I guess, in 2008. It's a movement. It started out as a nonprofit. It's called the Seasteading Institute, based in California. And what it means is living on platforms at, on the open oceans. And Over the years, several organisations so have produced lavish to, uh, plans demonstrating how whole communities, indeed many nations, could one day live on giant floating platforms. Like the famous Seasteading Institute, they're often highly political, libertarian Americans hoping to establish their version of utopia. But those visions have so far come to naught. Bryden Wang sees the real potential strength of offshore architecture not as the basis for new societies, but as the natural extension of existing onshore urban landscapes. I see one of the main problems of the way our coastal urbanisation has occurred is that we've got very flat and linear cities that are compressed against the coastlines. And that actually doesn't make for very vibrant cities. So as we extend into the ocean, and we see that happening right now with the siting of a lot of sensitive infrastructure like bridges, oil storage facilities, energy facilities, we'll see that as these structures get put into the water, we'll find that other parts of the city that we use for recreation, for residential facilities, will start to also start creeping into the water. And we can change the shape of the way our cities work to make it a lot more vibrant. You know, if you look in Korea and Singapore, they're starting to put immense cultural facilities in the water. Singapore has its massive floating a stage that sits right in the marina. We've got a lot of cultural and exhibition spaces in Seoul that are floating in their nearby water bodies. And so I see the future of floating cities as hybrids of the coastal cities that we have right now. So these hybrid floating cities are the future. Brighton Wang. Dutch architect Kern Altwies shares Brighton's vision. He specialises in designing floating buildings and structures, and he believes they can serve an important social and economic purpose. Take the Olympic Games, for example. So it's strange that for the Olympics, every four years, we see that people build and take so much money to the city and build these structures. And then after three weeks, four weeks, that's not being used anymore. And it's only the very rich cities who can deal with this kind of Olympics and compete to get the Olympics to their city. But if you do it on water and you say we'll build some floating stadiums and floating hotels and you can just, as a city, you can lease these structures to your city and you can use them and you pay for the use of three, four months and then they move to another city, then it becomes much more logical. And given that we can build very huge cruise ships, it is entirely possible that you could build, say, a floating stadium. Yeah, Absolutely. In Rotterdam, the Netherlands have already been active in that, designing these kind of structures. And technical is absolutely not a problem. It's more where do you place them, how long do they stay there, who is owning them, what kind of rules and regulations are applicable in that. And we always say if you want to build floating structures in your city, it's about the location. Eh? What kind of water do you have? Is it deep enough? Is there an, uh, what kind of flow is there? What kind of extreme weather we can expect? What kind of technology you have to build? And then it's about the rules and regulations. Does your city or your government allow these floating structures to be moved into your city? Do they see it as real estate or do they see it as boats? Well, and that's a kind of area where we do a lot of consultancy, where we bring our technology and ideas that have been done here in Holland to, to governments all around the world for them to start making use of the water. 
Now, your country, the Netherlands, obviously, there's a tradition, isn't there, of thinking about how you not only, as you say, deal with the ocean, but how you can live with the ocean. Well, the Dutch have always been in a kind, strange kind of relation with the water. We're living in a country where we shouldn't live. It's all beneath sea level. And all the land, or most of the land we have here, is just taken from the sea. So it's an artificial country. And we build all these levees and dikes and we start pumping water out towards the sea. And that's a kind of machine. If you stop that, then within a few months, most parts of Holland will be wet again. So it's a continuous process. And now with climate change, with more water in the rivers, more rain and a higher sea level, we see it's more difficult to keep our country dry. So we're now rethinking that and say, well, maybe some parts of Holland, we should just let water come in and just then start building on top of the water, not to lose any valuable space. So it's a necessity to think about water. And it's also part of the Dutch each time try to upgrade their country. We're going from a defensive country, defensive against water, now to much more offensive and living with the water. So master planning goes from static to dynamic. And as society changes and demands change and technology change and money change, we have to be sure that we can also adjust our plans. And if you want to adjust a neighborhood or you adjust the buildings, then on land that's very difficult because these buildings are static. But on water, yeah, of course, it's very easy to move the structures in, move them out, replace them. We call this designing for change and building for change. So we see water as the next, next big step. We think that cities that will work with the water and cities that have a lot of water, we call them blue cities, will be also the star cities of, of tomorrow. Those cities will be much more flexible than cities that don't have any water. And that's an, a nice change eh? because today we see cities that have a lot of water, see water as a threat and we see water as an, as an opportunity. I think certainly there's a lot of different drivers that are causing people to chase up this idea of, of floating cities and artificial islands. And I'm not sure if we can remove those sorts of drivers. So one of those would be climate change. One of those would be population growth in urban centers. We can't easily remove those drivers, those stressors. And so we do need to find a solution. And the oceans being a, a large area do offer some opportunities for us to put some of our displaced people and to find more space to house our, our population. So I can see why it's happening, but I think it needs to happen with some more sustainable ideas in, in mind. The technology for building artificial islands has grown at the same time ecological understanding of the impacts and how to manage them has grown so if we can put ecologists and, and engineers together at the beginning when construction is first being planned and designed then I think we have a lot of opportunities to build these artificial islands in a much more ecologically sustainable way. For every project that we do, we first have to do an environmental impact assessment. And maybe 10 years ago, it was that if you put something in the water and if you don't have any negative effect, you could build it. But now it's even changed. And now we have to prove that we have a positive effect. So we work with what we call blue habitats. These are kind of structures that we connect on the underside of our buildings or our floating parks or our parkings or whatever we do on water. And they have an effect on the water life. So it's a habitat for fish, for green life under these structures. And what we do, we measure the condition of the, the ecosystem before we do anything. We know how the ecosystem has to be improved. And then we connect uh, just the things that, that has a positive effect on it. So it architecture not only above the water, but also architecture underneath the water. And that's for us makes it very interesting. 
One of the criticisms I've seen of the notion of floating cities, and perhaps this comes from the sort of political dimensions of the seasteading movement, which has been promoting this for quite a while, although they don't seem to have got very far, the criticism is that this is really about elitism or can be about elitism as we face climate change in the future. Your thoughts on that? Yes, well, but what we see is that the evolution of cities, it goes in steps. And if we talk about the floating city, uh, some people talk about the most extreme things that can happen in 50 years or 80 years, eh, where we have something like a community in the middle of the ocean. But we see that many steps in between. We see the first the city that st- starts to use the water inside the city, and then maybe next to the city on, on the sea connected to the country, and then maybe more an open sea and then on the ocean. And the seasteading uh, community, they are thinking about something that is very far in the future where you have an own community with your own rules and regulations. And of course, people say, well, that's only for the rich. Uh, yes, that I think that's only for the rich, but we still can learn from that because innovation is always being done on cost of the rich. They have to pay for innovation. And if you can use that innovation for upgrading city life in, in the normal cities as we know it, then I think it's not the problem. We have to do both. We have to, to build the extreme ones and design the extreme ones, but we also have to make sure that that knowledge is being applicable and available for normal city life. You're with Future Tense on RN, ABC Radio National, exploring the world around us, looking for the pathways ahead and signposting the future. I want to introduce you now to a term some of you may already be familiar with. You're almost certain to hear more of it in the future. It's the blue economy. Times are changing rapidly. So should our economy. But what can we do differently? The UN suggests we can green our coastal and marine economy. In the Mediterranean, we call this the blue economy. Blue just like our sea. Blue like our sky. This is about improving human well-being and equality while reducing environmental risks and creating sustainable jobs. As you can hear, it's become a bit of a buzz term. And as marine technical specialist Daniel Stedman explains, it's both promising and troubling at the same time. So for me, the blue economy is a term or a concept that basically describes how the ocean benefits humanity and the value we place on keeping the ocean healthy and productive. Um, That's obviously a pretty broad definition, and I think it can be perceived positively or negatively. So on the one hand, the notion could be about making the most of the ocean to solve the existing challenges we face as a species and also to try to prioritise long-term over short-term thinking. So, for example, it might make short-term sense to, say, cut down mangroves to produce farmed shrimp. That could reduce poverty. It could prevent us having to take more fish from the ocean. But in the long term, it could make people poorer and it could make the oceans more depleted if those mangroves aren't there to prevent flooding, the destruction of people's homes and resulting increased reliance on wild fish. So I guess what I'm saying is if you had your blue economy hat on, hopefully you'd choose the intact mangroves over the shrimp farm. And I guess that's a positive way of looking at it. On the other hand, the blue economy could be negative and it could be perceived as about only solving the challenge of how to maximise what a small number of people financially gain from the ocean. So... I guess another example there could be that you could say that building a lot of infrastructure to extract fossil fuels from under the seabed will create a new blue economy for a particular nation or a group of nations, especially if that's a group of nations that's less developed and sees this as key to its sustainable development and poverty reduction strategies. 
But ultimately, if the burning of those fossil fuels endangers our entire species by rapidly exacerbating the climate crisis, then the blue economy concept looks very short-sighted and potentially dangerous. And many major world organisations are now using this term blue economy, aren't they? And they are, as you've pointed out, they are putting their own interpretation on what this means. Absolutely, they are. I mean, I think that where we're really seeing it come to the fore as a, as a term that's, I guess, galvanising a lot of action and a lot of commitments is on the international stage. So there have been a number of conferences around the world where you've seen large gatherings of heads of state titans and captains of industry who've all sort of aligned around this term and probably themselves been having the same debate that we're having it you know is economizing the ocean something that is about making the world a fairer place or is it about exploring new frontiers deriving whole new industries from the things that are in the ocean that we barely understand so i think it is gaining traction i guess what will be the next step is seeing individual nations sort of actually completely reformulate their sustainable development goals and strategies around that blue economy language. And in some places you are seeing that, like Kenya, for example. Daniel Stedman from Fauna and Flora International. So the blue economy concept is essentially about rethinking the way we interact with the oceans. But the difficulty lies in the ambiguity of the term. Dr Darren Cundy, the CEO for the newly established Blue Economy CRC, a cooperative research centre in Tasmania. If you were to ask the World Bank, I mean, they would describe the blue economy as the sustainable use of ocean resources for economic growth, improved livelihoods and jobs, while preserving the health of oceans and the ecosystems that revolve around them. Whereas the yeah, European Commission would say that it's all economic activities related to oceans, seas and coasts. So it covers a wide range of interlinked, established and emerging sectors. So I think that there's a range of definitions, but what really is clear is that the blue economy is is challenging us to, to realise that the sustainable management of ocean resources is going to require a collaboration across borders and across sectors through a whole range of partnerships on a scale that really we haven't seen before. And for you, that notion of sustainability is, is an important one. It's part of how you see the concept. Absolutely. This idea of, of sustainability goes to the very heart, the Blue Economy Cooperative Research Centre, which I'm involved with. The CRC's programs, which benefit from a very significant contribution from the federal government, and the funds then go on to leverage an even larger contribution from our industry and research sectors. And it's about tackling uh, national issues and capturing significant opportunities. And this is very much the case for the Blue Economy CRC. We're unlocking technologies and solutions that will allow Australia to be a global leader in harnessing this uh, blue economy. And of course, sustainability goes to the very heart of this undertaking. Given that this concept's been developing over time, why is it that we have these different versions of what blue economy means? Why haven't we got a, a, a central notion of the term? When you think about what a blue economy is, depending on your perspective, it might be around fisheries, it might be about maritime transport, it could be tourism, waste management, it could be renewable energy, even extraction from seabeds, marine biotechnology, bioprospecting. So the oceans are a vast resource and there are different perspectives on how the economic value of that might be might be tackled. The Blue Economy CRC 
that we are involved in, of course, is taking a particular lens to the concept of blue economy, which is around creating an offshore platform that will allow us to take aquaculture to a different level. Now, Dr Cundy's new $329 million initiative involves six Australian research agencies and over 25 industry and government partners. It's a 10-year collaboration. Its focus is on developing a new state-of-the-art floating fish farm, one that generates its own renewable energy. The pressures from population growth, coupled with the environmental and economic challenges of on-land protein production, has seen an explosion in aquaculture around the world. And here in Australia in particular, it it has a hard-won reputation as being an exporter for high-quality seafood to an ever-expanding Asian market. And, of course, this is continuing to place pressure on sustainable coastal sites of aquaculture. So... On and nearshore aquaculture has made great strides here in Australia in relation to addressing environmental challenges. But as we can expect to see that uh, the community and government's expectations around regulations will increase, this pressure on coastal spaces will continue to become more and more contested. So the Blue Economy CRC is responding to a call from aquaculture industry to offer a sustainable and economically feasible way to move offshore. The offshore option just holds enormous potential. If we can develop ways that these systems can operate in an energy self-efficient way using innovative aquaculture methods but remaining sensitive to the, the environment, particularly for Australia, we're having the third largest exclusive economic zone. This means that there's an enormous amount of ocean to assess. And here in Tasmania, for instance, where we hope to trial an offshore platform that leverages these technologies, we have access to some of the most energetic marine environments in the world, offering us incredible locations to experiment with this cutting-edge wind, wave and tidal energy generation system. So the potential, I think, is large indeed. What sort of engineering would need to be involved for this kind of offshore platform for aquaculture that you're envisaging? So if we think about the three industry sectors that we're bringing together of aquaculture, offshore engineering and renewable energies, each one of those are standalone industries that have infrastructure at their heart. What this CRC is trying to do is to bring those together so that the infrastructure is suitable for an offshore environment, which allows the existing aquaculture systems to be adapted. It allows the renewable energy systems to be able to exist in a permanent offshore environment so that these things can operate as independent, standalone and energy self-sufficient structures. But once again, however well-intentioned, it's that marriage of economic growth with notions of environmental sustainability that worries Daniel Stedman about the very essence of the blue economy approach. In some cases, it's about making explicit that there are trade-offs in place if we want to preserve the planet for the long term. So some of the sort of, in inverted commas, blue economy arguments are about the fact that, for example, if we want to reduce emissions from the world's fleet of cars, then we're going to need rare earth metals to build electric cars. And obviously there's trade-offs there because the way we get rare earth metals at the moment is incredibly destructive for the environment. 
and there is this you know new emerging opportunity to get some of those same metals in much higher densities from places on the seabed and on the one hand i can absolutely see that that appears as a trade-off where the i guess less explored but potentially more expensive at least up front way of extracting them from the seabed appears to be the more in inverted commas sustainable option but i guess what i find problematic is that the world doesn't necessarily work like that so you know if you take rare earth metals from the ocean claiming that it's because you'll take less from the land and then both the new extraction in the ocean starts up and the old extraction on the land continues you've perpetuated a problem probably created a new one and not solved anything similarly if you farm fish to reduce the need to catch them in the ocean but then the fish in the farm need to eat fish from the ocean you've created this sort of negative feedback loop of interdependencies where neither people nor the ocean are improving Daniel Stedman from Fauna and Flora International. We also heard today from Dr Darren Cundy at the Blue Economy CRC in Tasmania, Dutch architect Kern Altwies, Bryden Wang at the Queensland University of Technology and Macquarie University's Dr Catherine Daffhorn. Karen Savanovitz is my colleague and co-producer here at Future Tense. I'm Anthony Fennell. Until next time. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.